Welcome to The Sacramentalist, a podcast where the ancient Christian faith is brought to bear on issues prevalent to modern culture. We're your hosts. I'm Father Wesley Walker. And I'm Father Creighton McElveen. And we are here today to begin a new season of The Sacramentalist. Sadly, a season, our first season ever without Father Miles Hickson. Um, we wish him the best of luck in all his uh, ventures. You can go back and listen to the, uh, to the episode that we did with him about his farm, St. Mary's Farm. Um, and his and all his future ventures, you can find them on Instagram. Um, I'm sure that that the Lord's going to bless all of their endeavors. But Father Creighton, how has your summer been? It's been good. Um, it's been a little bit hectic, uh, which I think, you know, that does happen. Um, but it's been good. It's been uh, it's kind of flown by. I mean, from going to England and doing some other trips and and things, um, things have just sort of rocketed towards autumn um but having fun um what about you how's your summer been yeah it's been about the same i think you know i i I got all excited once things at the church started winding down for summer and thinking oh this will be great but of course that's never how it works when you're a priest you know things never really full down uh, fully slow down it's always kind of um what's the next crisis that, you know, we have to navigate through or what, what's the next big project that we're working on. So there's never really a, a straight summer break. So, you know, it's, it's been good. It's been a good summer, but yeah, it's, it's been quite busy, uh, quite busy. So, but I'm excited to get back uh, into recording regularly with you, father. This is going to be a lot of fun this season. Perhaps I guess we should tell our listeners what we're going to be doing this season. And I think, you know, our, our tagline uh, of the show, uh, the podcast where the ancient Christian faith is brought to bear on issues prevalent in modern culture, really has kind of two poles in it. Um, there's the ancient Christian faith element of it, and then there is this sort of bringing it to bear on modern culture aspect. And, you know, different seasons, I think we emphasize different different poles in that. Um, so our season on Anglo-Catholic piety and devotion, for example, I think really emphasized maybe more of the ancient element to that. Um, whereas our season on Catholic social teaching perhaps was more about uh, bringing that to bear on issues prevalent to modern culture. Um, so this year, um, or this this semester, basically, we're going to talk about um, cultural engagement, which I think in some ways will will dovetail with what we did um, in Catholic social teaching. Um, some of this, there will be some overlap, I'm sure, in some of our discussions. But cultural engagement, I think, is a little bit more more broad than just moral theology. Uh, it includes moral theology, but it includes more than that. Um, so anyway, so we'll certainly be we'll certainly be focusing more on that on that aspect of of how do we bring all this to bear in our own context and our own milieus. Yeah, I I think um, we can take some of the principles that we talked about and that got discussed in the season on Catholic social teaching, and in some ways sort of bring them down into a more itemized sort of look at things. We're going to, we'll, we'll take particular issues, particular things uh, or ideas and and talk about them. And, you know, we're always as, as Christians and as, as those trying to learn more about the faith and learn more about God, we're always synthesizing and, and taking knowledge that we've learned and applying it to particular areas in our life. And, this season, we're you know ultimately going to be trying to do that uh, with a number of uh, interesting topics, you know, and um, 
I'll I'll ask the listeners. Um, you know, bear with us in some ways. I think uh, some of these topics might be uh, issues that you've thought a lot about or that you maybe haven't thought much about, but they can be a little bit hot button uh, issues. They can, you know, we're, we're going to be talking about things like care for creation and um, economic engagement and uh, people have opinions about those things. Um, but we want to try to present an argument that's firmly rooted in in the Catholic faith and uh, have a positive and uplifting conversation about these particular issues. So uh, if you do comment or um, if you do leave us reviews or if you're active on our Discord, uh, which you can get access to through our Patreon, then uh, we just ask for you to be respectful um, and to engage with this with a, a sense of intellectual curiosity uh, and Christian charity. Absolutely. Absolutely. In all things. In fact, that actually, uh, that actually leads us kind of into our discussion today, I think, which we're going to just be talking briefly kind of about a, a Christian hermeneutic for cultural engagement. Um, how should we, what does that look like when we go to engage the, the larger world in which we live? And I think before we even really carve out a, a specific, um, a specific hermeneutic, we we have to really, I think, understand what is the world itself. You know, we use that term a lot. That term even comes up in scripture a number of times. And really, there are kind of two senses in which it's used. There is this sort of pejorative sense, right? The world stands for all of those forces opposed to God. Specifically, it's that project of autonomy, you know, sort of embodied by the Tower of Babel, or the city of man, as St. Augustine would call it. You know, and, and biblically, there's plenty of precedent to, to speak of the world that way. So we might think of, of the letter of 1 St. John in chapter 2, verse 15. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. So there is a very stark, you know, either it's one or the other. Um, sort of a Joshua moment, right? Choose this day whom you'll serve. But this isn't the only way that the world is used in the scriptures, right? The world can also stand for everything that's created. That complex interconnection between peoples and their environments and other finite things, right? Um, that is the world. I think it's Wittgenstein who says the world is all that is, right? And so there's a sense in which um, where uh, that's that's a biblical understanding of the world, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So not only are those both uh, at play in scripture, but they're actually at play in the Johannine corpus. So, so there is this kind of dual aspect of the world, right? There is a sense in which the world is this project that is in some ways anti-God, many ways anti-God, um, perhaps without realizing it, but that's what it is. And then there is a sense in which the world stands for these interconnected relations um, that we have with others. Yeah, and I think we have to do the work of understanding what we're talking about when we use that when we use that word uh, and what Scripture is talking about. Um, you know, we we have to we have to be good interpreters and contextualize things. Um, and so, yeah, on the one hand, you do get that that you know the the sort of tripartite world, flesh, devil sort of. Uh, 
uh, set in contrast to God, the kingdom of God, that sort of thing. Uh, but you also get a very distinct view of creation. Um, you think about Genesis and God creating the world, looking at it and saying, this is good. Uh, creating man, setting man within a relationship with himself, and then setting man into a relationship with other human beings, with animals, plants, everything, uh, as as steward and custodian of um, of the creation. And so I think we have to be careful. Um, anytime we talk about engagement with with the world, um, we we just need to be good about what we mean by the word world um, and being precise with with our terminology um, is always better than just generalizing uh, and confusing uh, listeners or, or or anything like that. So I think we need to uh, take a look at kind of those two definitions of of world and how it plays out for us in our project of. Um, adding this sort of interpretive lens to to how we engage with culture, and there's probably a sense in which and I I would make the argument in which in which both of those both aspects of that definition of world, the sort of pejorative sense and the more holistic or phenomenological sense, are both sort of always at play. So it's not that one is more true than the other or that one is better than the other, but rather that they both describe sort of two sides of the same coin. So it's very easy for us to to cons you know, I, I think as Christians, especially if you've been raised in a certain kind of Christianity, you know, to always conceive of the world as something to which you are acting over and against rather than a part of. But there is a sense in which as creatures who are in contexts, we can't actually be taken out of the first completely. We're always in it in some way. And this is, I think, again, I think kind of a biblical thing. I mean, you know, you have verses like, be in the world, not of the world. You know, well, what does that mean exactly? I mean, there is a sense in which being in the world is just inescapable because that's what it means to be creaturely, right? So, and I think what we're, what we're, getting at here is something that the church has wrestled with for a really long time, right? So there are, I, I've been reading The Vision of God by Kenneth Kirk, who was an Anglo-Catholic. Um, these were the Brampton lectures that he gave back in the, back in the mid 20th century. And um, so their lectures about the beatific vision, but he is talking about Christian moral theology throughout the centuries. And he isolates two postures or extremes when it comes to engaging with the world. So the first that he isolates is humanism. And humanism is always looking for the good, for the redeemable. Um, and I think, you know, again, I think there's much to commend about this approach, but when it's taken to, an its, to its extreme, I think Kirk would say the danger here is a kind of capitulation to the world Right. In which we actually become active participants in the city of man project in ways that may be unhealthy or unproductive or even counter to the faith. So there's humanism on the one hand, but the other extreme is a kind of rigorism that really emphasizes dualism. And that dualism causes one to seek separation from the world, 
for aesthetic purposes. And again, much to commend here, right? I mean, some of the great saints of the church are these ascetics and monks and hermits, you know, who who are able to go off by themselves and learn to master their own passions and, and all that. And there's much to be commended there. But just like humanism has the danger of capitulation, I think that the danger of rigorism is what Mother Maria of Paris calls ascetic disdain, right? In which we reduce everything, everything to my personal relationship with God. And of course, personal here, typically, at least in our American context, means private relationship with God. Um, and this is this is not very healthy because it causes us to look at the world in a way that can never positively engage with the world, you know? Um, so as a Christian, there is a sense in which it should not surprise me when people in the city of man act like they live in the city of man, you know? And exactly. I shouldn't really be shocked by that. Um, and so, you know, this isn't to say that rigorism is, is all bad, but just that, that we have to guard against that extreme. Yeah. And it's, 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 it's one of those things that, um, you, you mentioned, uh, John three sixteen, right. For God so loved the world. There's a real danger in, in the sort of rigorist approach to hate what God loves. Mm -hmm. And I think as Christians, uh, that's the that's a big problem. Um, we can't be hating what God loves and consider ourselves to be uh, good Christians following uh, right. the, the tenets of, of Christianity and, and, and living the Christian life when we are so uh, wrapped up in that ascetic retreat that we forsake the world, uh, that we just say, well, it's all doomed and we are going to, in some ways, revel in its destruction. Um, there's a pathology there. There's, there's, there's a rot uh, in the heart of the person that does that. In the same way that there is a problem on the flip side of, um, in some ways, making maybe excuses for what the world does uh, because it's easier or because of a whole host of reasons, uh, sort of excusing away certain behaviors or saying, uh, you know, well, yeah, the, you know, this thing that this culture in this time praises or prioritizes uh, somehow is over and more important than, um, you know, what we've received uh, as, as Catholic Christians. Um, right. And so, yeah, you have to you have to balance those two things, and either extreme really does put you into to some problematic territory with how we uh, reconcile just the you know the data of scripture and the data of of the you know two thousand years of church history. I think that's a very pithy way of saying it. Um, if you if you fall to the trap of extreme rigorism that leads to ascetic disdain, you hate what God loves. If you fall into the extreme trap of capitulation from humanism, you love what God hates. Uh, so better to love what God loves in the way that he loves it, right? Exactly. <laughs> that's, that's exactly what we're going to be trying to carve out. And that's very hard, though, because I think our, our humanness, given that we're finite rational creatures, in addition to some of the limits that we have just innately 
one of those approaches, and, and it also can be determined probably by things like personality, you know, traits and things. One of those approaches will certainly gravitate, will gravitate towards them. Uh, and we have to be conscious of that. So, you know, I don't know. I, I feel like probably different times of my life, I go one towards the other, one or the other. Generally, I might be more of a humanist, you know, than a rigorist um, because I don't like fasting or anything like that. Um <laughs> just kidding but uh but no but but you know knowing that that's my knowing that that's sort of my default then it's important i think that i you know maybe emphasize rigorism in some ways in my life you know to balance to balance it out um but someone who's a rigorist should certainly make a make a a habit of trying to find the good um the true the beautiful you know in, in things that maybe aren't strictly christian um yeah i i i think that's exactly right people will tend towards one or the other and and this is not to um just just as a an aside for a second you know this we're not saying that somebody who is called to the particular vocation of uh monastic asceticism or the religious life um is somehow out of balance or somehow right. uh over emphasizing these two particular things that's kind of a separate issue uh, in some ways, that's that's a that's a personal vocation that that someone has uh, for their own salvation. That's that is the thing God is using to to work out their salvation, um, and they should follow it, and it's for their good. Um, but we can also see within the religious life, um, orders and people have different charisms, different gifts, and so some of them are cloistered. Uh, monastics, you know, you can think of an, a number of different orders um, that are contemplative cloistered orders, and then you've got others um, like Franciscans, uh, think, think of uh, all of the work in the world that has been done by mendicant orders like the Franciscans, uh, and it's pretty amazing. They're living a rigorous ascetic life, but they're also deeply engaged with uh, what's going on in the world. Um, and so I think that's important to, to kind of keep those things in balance, but also understand that we're not condemning or praising or, or doing anything negative uh, to uh, somebody's religious vocation. This right. is more of our, you know, we're talking about a uh, general approach to engagement. Yeah, and I think um, I think it also helps to to realize too that while we we would I think seek a balance between the two approaches at at different points in different contexts, one or the other may be more appropriate. So, for example, I mean the rise of monasticism, which again, like you say, we're not talking about necessarily people's personal vocations now, but but the but monasticism comes out of a sort of rigorist approach, you know, um, at a time where the rigorous where rigorism was needed. Um, whereas, I don't know, if you look at the medieval aspects of the medievals, or you look at aspects of the Renaissance or 20th century mainline Protestantism, you know, they're all going to emphasize sort of humanism, um, in ways that are good and typically appropriate to the time in which they, they live. Um, so, you know, uh, the world can be the city of man. Um, but it's also the milieu in which we are enmeshed. And I think that enmeshment is important. We can never be divorced from our context. We need to care about our context. And so um, the question is, how do we orient ourselves towards, towards them? 
Yeah, and, and anytime we talk about cultural engagement, I think um, I think it's important to, to, to mention that we are not interested. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and speak for you, Father Wes. Uh, we're not interested in culture wars. Right. Um, we're not trying to advocate for one side or the other or any of that kind of stuff because there are so many um, philosophical problems with approaching things that way. Uh, we don't have the time to get into all of the issues, but we as Christians should approach cultural engagement. Hopefully we will help kind of break this down in this episode with, with this, you know, kind of hermeneutic of cultural engagement, but we should be approaching, uh, this project with a deep sense of charity, love, and, uh, a willingness to communicate. Uh, I think the Christians, um, from the standpoint of, of how outsiders view Christians have done a really bad job of this. Um, Christians have done a really bad job of um, being charitable, loving um, individuals who are enmeshed in the world. We we cannot be disassociated from the creation because we are part of the creation. Um, and so, as Christians, you know we we have to we've, we we have to you know sort of push back against uh, when when Christians behave badly. Uh, because that's a lot of what people see um, is example after example of Christians behaving badly on this particular issue and how they engage the world. Um, it doesn't do anybody any good. Uh, it certainly doesn't further the kingdom of God when Christians are nasty and hateful and combative. Um, and so I, I think that this this whole project of of uh, what it means to be in the world and how we as Christians relate to it. Um, we have to be mature and loving individuals um, when we do this because uh, what's at stake is nothing less than the happiness and beatitude of the people we interact with. And our own happiness and beatitude, right? I mean, this is one of the reasons right. why why what we say and how we say it is so important. Because if we're not speaking the truth in love, then it, it not only can damage other people, um, it can also damage ourselves. I mean, if you read that passage in Ephesians where St. Paul says that, speaking the truth in love, the speaking the truth in love is a participle phrase that modifies you growing into Christ. Right. Not the other person, not the listener, but the speaker by speaking the truth and love grows into Christ. Right. And so um, there is a sense in which, yes, we 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 do this in a sort of out of, out of a sort of missional posture, you know, to, to reach the world. Social engagement is necessary because the culture needs the gospel. At the same time, um, that preaching of the gospel is always intricately tied to the salvation of the preacher himself. I mean, I think I think preaching regularly has has inculcated this in in my own understanding a little more like i often preach the sermons i need to hear you know my my Always. own salvation is tied tied up with that sermon uh it's not just some 
thoughts that I had that, you know, for other people, <laughs> it's usually for me first and hopefully other people will, will, uh, will come around to it. Perhaps we could talk briefly about some scriptural, important scriptural elements of, of cultural engagement. Cause I actually think that there's a lot. And I, I think we've maybe talked about some of this before, um, back in the day, like, uh, maybe episode seven, I think, which is our episode on pagan Christianity. We talked about how Christianity and paganism are related. Um, and Miles did a lot of work on that and has some really excellent thoughts. So it might be good to go back and listen to that. Um, however, I think it may be worth revisiting some of those biblical examples and, and perhaps adding a few new ones here today um, in light of this conversation. So, I mean, really, I think cultural engagement begins in Genesis chapter one with God creating the world sort of in there, I, I think, on two levels. Um, there's the actual creation itself, right? Which means God has created the world. Uh, and so we should therefore care about it, just like you said, Father, earlier, that that we should love what God loves. Um, he created the world, so he loves it. You know, we talk about this uh, during Lent. He, he hateth not that which he has made, you know, that that kind of aspect of it. So, so the story itself teaches us we should care about the world. But I think there's also something about the milieu in which the story was created. Uh, or or written, composed, you know, which is intentional dialogue with pagan uh, creation stories, right? So the authors are engaging with their world, right? S particularly the Babylonian or Canaanite creation myths, but they're doing it in such a way as to as to point the reader to the God of Israel and why the God of Israel sort of makes more sense than the pagan gods like like i love the line in genesis one you know he god creates the heavenly bodies and then it tacks on at the end and he also made the stars and it's a very sort of flippant and short comment that's what the pagans were worshiping right so the authors are very i think in a kind of funny backhanded way being like oh yeah you know those things that you worship well our god created those you know yeah <laughs> let, let me tell you where those stars came from it's 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 evident too i mean if if you if you do any sort of research or look into to kind of ancient near eastern religious practices and and the religious landscape of the ancient near east um it would just it's just silly to think that uh you know let's take genesis for example is written in a vacuum divorced from the context of ancient near eastern religion that's just ridiculous. Right. It is it is written, yes, uh, to expound and to teach who Yahweh, the God of Israel, is. But it's written as a response to the cultures and the religions that surround it. I mean, there's direct inversions in scripture uh, of pagan deities. And, um, you know, you can... Uh, the Father Andrew Stephen Damick and Father Stephen DeYoung, uh, their podcast, Lord of Spirits, I mean, they do talk about some of this. They had a recent episode on um, thunder gods, storm gods, right? And they talk about how Baal is a storm god, and you get multiple references to God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, saying, yeah, your storm god is pretty pathetic, Um you know, he's supposed to be the cloud rider. Well, the Lord descends on a cloud, you know, like there, there's this 
conversation that's going on in the text between what's going on in the religious landscape and what the people of God need to know about God, um, taking what is that sort of pagan understanding of things, be it sort of benign paganism, and it's just their attempt to understand the world, or a more active, hostile paganism where it's sort of uh, demonic propaganda. And it's taking it and saying, you think this is the way things are. Well, actually, this is the way it is. This is the way God intends it to be. That is a project of cultural engagement, start to finish. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, it's pretty clear that the, the Israelites, if you look at their history, uh, they're oscillating back and forth. Uh, the, the period of times that, that ancient Israel and the people of God are practicing and doing the right thing and being the people of God is far more infrequent than when they are worshiping Baal and other deities and, and doing what their neighbors are doing. That's the norm. <laughs> One uh, other Old Testament story that I always like to point to that I think really demonstrates this this kind of tension that we're talking about between humanism and rigorism is um, is Judges chapter six when Gideon is called by God and and you know Gideon of course is much like everyone who's called his first response is to give God a list of all the reasons why he's not qualified you know he's the weakest of the weakest clan and um, God gives him some signs and so Gideon finally sort of relents to to the call. Um, and one of the first things that he's tasked to do is to go to the idols that his family has constructed and destroy them. Um, and so there's that element of sort of iconoclasm, you know, with, with, I, I mean, obviously, I mean, iconoclasm in a very specific sense here, the, the destruction of idols. Um, we're a seventh ecumenical podcast, friendly podcast. Um, uh, because we think that those are important. So like sacred images themselves are not bad. Gideon is destroying altar altars and idols made to pagan gods, right? But out of the rubble of what he deconstructs, he's called to build an altar to the Lord. So that raw material doesn't go away. It's repurposed. It's transfigured. It's reused. It's redeemed, literally, right? Um, and so I think that that is a very good way of thinking. Uh, Peter Lightheart in his book, he's got a book called um, Heroes of the City of Man, which is about um, the pagan classics, you know, the Iliad and the Odyssey and stuff. He talks about how uh, in some ways Christian engagement is is like a culture war or, or like a holy war is the term he uses. Um, and that is true, but uh, but just like Augustine would say, right, part of our job is to plunder the Egyptians. Um, and so that's very much what Gideon does here. He deconstructs the idols, and then out of those, he creates something for God. Yeah, and, and we see almost the exact thing happen in church history um, when St. Augustine of Canterbury is sent uh, to evangelize uh, England, uh, he's not told, you know, Pope St. Gregory the Great makes it very clear, um, baptize the shrines. Um, make sure that you understand the culture and the context within which you are going to be preaching the gospel and show them how the gospel fulfills and how the gospel transforms and redeems. Um, and then you get 
you know, sort of the other side uh, of the of the spectrum with with uh, Saint Boniface chopping down uh, the oak. Right there, there is a sense in which uh, Pope Saint Gregory the Great is extending some yeses and um, engaging with hope and fruitfulness and charity and love. Um, and then sometimes there are things that need to be chopped down. Um, and so we, we see, we see all that play out taken both from the scriptural data, but then also in, in the, the history of the church and how she does this project. Absolutely. Absolutely. The new Testament has, I think the same or a very similar posture, you know, I mean the teachings of our Lord, uh, on the one hand, there is a humanism in the teachings of Christ. Come unto me, all ye that travail and are heavy laden, and I will refresh you. A bruised reed he didn't break. You know, these kind of, of thinking. Um, reaching out to people on the margins of the society, I mean, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, etc. There has to be some sort of, um, not compromise, compromise is the wrong word for it, but there has to be some sort of, contextualization there you know jesus reaches out and touches them as they are to bring them in but there is a there is a rigorism as well pick up your cross and follow me i mean the whole gospel of matthew i think is is generally more rigorous um it's sort of a discipleship manual you know um so so we have that those poles in his own teaching we have it in saint paul right Acts 17, where he goes to the pagans and he's very friendly to them. You know, hey, let me tell you who this altar to the unknown God is actually for. And let me quote your own poets at you. In him, we live and move and have our being. I mean, these are all very sort of humanistic. You know, he's looking for the good while he's there with them. But then you read Romans 1 and you read some of the things he says about the the Greco-Roman pagan world. And um, I mean, some, some it's such a stark difference that some scholars actually suggest that Paul never preached Acts 17, that that's like a later, you know, thing that's been written. I don't think that's persuasive, but it does show you the starkness, the difference, and really the pastoral flexibility of St. Paul, right? That he can, when he's writing to his churches, be very direct with them and emphasize the rigorous elements. But when he's out in the world, that he can, he can sort of embrace a humanistic posture. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I mean, he says this in other places, he's all things to all people. Um, right. And that is part of part of his job as an apostle to, to do that. Um, but different con and, and it really takes wisdom, doesn't it, to know which which is appropriate when. I think that's the thing is, is there is the proper sort of engagement application of that knowledge. And and it I think maturity is a good word. Um, you know, I, I when. Most people might have this uh, when they're younger, but you know, you you you're young, you're energetic about your faith, you're excited about what it is. You you you've maybe only known that, and you're starting to engage with people as you get older who come from different backgrounds and have different belief systems, and your natural posture is sort of the convince them why they are wrong they need this because it's good and it's right and i i've i've benefited from it and you know it's 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 all things to me and so of course you need it but um they sort of go on the offensive and that that is you know maybe not the wrong motivation it might be the right motivation you love that person they're your friend you want them to be happy and you you know 
want all of these good things for them, and you think what you have is going to be this good thing for them. So you're going to try to convince them. But as we grow in maturity, as we grow in the, the practice of wisdom and that virtue, um, we begin to understand that they're a human being coming with their own biases, their own, you know, conceptions of the world, that their own experiences. And our approach to how we engage with them uh, needs to be what they need. Not what we think they need. It needs to be what they need. <laughs> uh, and I think St. Paul is really good at doing that. He's really good at identifying uh, what the audience he's engaging with needs so that they understand the truth. Um, and, you know, with the Corinthians, he he's, you know, hammers them pretty well sometimes. Um, but we can see in other places that he's much more gentle, much more um, patient and accommodating and, um, you know, engaging with that more humanistic side. There, uh, we just rewatched the film Calvary. Uh, which of mm. course Miles had pointed out to to me. Um, what a, a good film! Ago, and I'd never seen it, and uh, so we watched it. And then my wife never watched it. I watched it by myself, and so we watched it the other night. And you know, the, 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 it's the, about this priest in in this Irish country parish, you know, and and all of his parishioners they come to mass, but they're very sort of nominal, and they all have their own hangups and things they're dealing with, you know. And I think he does this very well too, as far as his humanism and and rigorism. You know, there's a there's a sort of male prostitute character who who's very vulgar and um, tries to kind of shock the priest, you know, and there's just this beautiful scene. And I think it really embodies a kind of, of, of good Christian humanism where as this guy is kind of poking fun at the priest and making a lot of crude jokes, the priest looks at him and he goes, are you okay? Do you need <laughs> help? You know, he sees him and he wants to, he knows that there's something under the surface and he, he's trying to get there with him. But meanwhile, when he has a rich parishioner, who's just sort of, a drunk and doesn't you know have any real overarching purpose and he the parishioner decides to give you know twenty thousand pounds for for the, a new church building um and and he's trying to do it to assuage his own guilt but he's also making it clear that that is not a substantial amount of money to him the priest looks at him and goes well why not fifty thousand then right you know so so there's that element there's both you know and, and you have yeah. to have both pastorally um and you know wisdom dictates what's appropriate and what's not that is so a I, fan, fantastic film, by the oh, way. Oh, it's so um, I Every uh, Holy Week, um, there, there's always The Passion of the Christ, which yes. I, I, I do watch regularly during Lent or Holy Week um, just because it's so moving. And, and there are some scenes in there that just get me every time. Um, uh, when when our lady sees Christ with the cross and stumbles and she's mm. flashing back to when he's a child and he, you know, she makes his, her way to him and he looks at her and he says, see, I make all things new. Like that just, just gets me. I will just weep uncontrollably. Um, but since Calvary came out and it's been out for a while now, I it think it may have come out in, you know, almost 10 years ago, but it, it, um, it has entered into my uh, Holy Week watching um, because it, it it's a very much this particular priest's Calvary. Um, yeah. And you have to watch the movie to see what happens. And 
not going to spoil anything, but it's it's about his experience really picking up his cross and and following Christ. Um, it's the quintessential movie about priesthood. Like I actually think that people going through the, the discernment process should be forced to watch that. Um, I had to read uh, Fulton Sheen's A Priest Is Not His Own. Right. And that movie is basically a, a narratival description of the book, I think, in many ways. Um, so, yes, it's uh, it's it's important to understand the, what you're signing up for. Yeah. And the, the priest is is played by Brennan Gleason, and he is fantastic. It's one of his he's, he's, might be his best role. Yeah. Yeah. So taking all this data, then we've talked a lot about uh, these kind of tendencies throughout church history and, and these tendencies and postures in the scriptures. And I think um, it might help to, to talk about what does what does it actually look like then? What does a Herman? What are the contours of a, of a Christian social engagement? And I, I would propose a sort of synthesis um, between rigorism and humanism. And I would describe that synthesis by saying that it should be a missional combination of both rigorism and humanism that is flexible with integrity. And I think that's important because missional, you know, I think entails the the cultural engagement or at least the telos of cultural engagement, right? When we engage with culture, there is a transformative aspect to that or or, or end goal, right? Now, we may just be pushing the ball down the field for other people, right? Some sow, some reap. Um, and so our goal should never be overly grandiose. I think that can be a problem, like with mm -hmm. the age person, you know, who they just found Catholicism or Anglicanism or whatever. And so they think everybody else needs to find Catholicism or Anglicanism. And um, that may not work, you know, for everyone. Um, but but we do our engagement should have that end goal in mind. And what we're called to do may vary based on our particular gifts. But that's that's our purpose. But it needs to be flexible, right? Our context needs to needs to determine some of of how of the shape of our cultural engagement. Um, so, some contexts we might emphasize a kind of humanism, and other contexts we might emphasize a kind of rigorism, um, just like our Lord does, just like Saint Paul does. Um, so, you know, when I go to the brewery down the street and I meet people who have not set foot in a church for twenty years, I'm not going to come down on them. Uh, in the same way that I do when I've got like someone who keeps waffling between us and, you know, going to like a Baptist church or, you know, something like that, you know, someone who who's in the faith, who kind of maybe knows better. Um, right. I will, I will push them in a way that I wouldn't push the person who comes up and just talks to me because they are curious about my collar, you know, at the coffee shop. Um, and again, that's largely dependent on wisdom. And that's just something that, or, or, or the virtue of prudence, we might say, um, which is knowing the means to the end. You know, we have to know that um, in order to understand which, which posture is, is most appropriate. But also, you know, paired with, with flexibility is integrity. Um, and what, how I would take that to mean in, the term, in terms of cultural engagement is the willingness to baptize something, right? Because baptism is not capitulation, like the error of humanism. Right. Baptism is in some ways uh, like St. Paul's language, you know, the old is gone and the new is come. There's that aspect of baptism. But we also know grace doesn't destroy nature. It perfects nature. So there is a sense in which something is elevated through baptism. Um, and so uh, that should be the goal. Right. When we engage with something, we're looking to make it better, not 
erase it or leave it as it is. You know, Jesus calls the people just as they are, come follow me, but they don't stay the way that they are. And similarly, our engagement with culture should do something very similar. You know, like we say, I mean, you can't expect everyone in, in, in a culture to conform to Christian standards, but through our engagement with them, the goal is that sort of transformation. Right. So I think it allows us to have the best of both, right? We can see the good without the error of capitulation. And I think the, that's, that's bold. I don't know. Maybe that, maybe you disagree with me father on that, but that's, that's what I propose. No, I, I, I think that's, that's the way forward. And, and again, I'll say this from a, maybe a pastoral perspective. Um, I think very few people, um, and and this is difficult in the particular day and age that we live, when you can when when everybody can have a platform, and everybody can post on Twitter, and everybody can post on whatever social media they're using, um, their opinions and what they think, and they can comment on a particular this or a particular that. Uh, and I would say for most Christians. This might sound harsh, but you need to shut up. <laughs> um, and I would, I would recommend you spend some time reading uh, Psalms, Proverbs, um, the Book of Wisdom, um, and see what those texts have to say about the wise man versus the foolish man and which one speaks. And I think if you are going to engage, you need to engage with intellectual integrity and you need to be attempting, uh, I think, this particular synthesis. Otherwise, you're going to be doing damage to yourself or to others. Um, so I, I want to like, I just want to sit on that for a second because yeah. the, that that's such a reality that we live in with so many quote unquote Twitter theologians and commentators who are frankly giving christianity a bad name right i once heard of a pastor at the at this college that i went to at, at one of our convocation services say the gospel is offensive enough you don't have to make it worse <laughs> right and, and he is right about that you know and 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 again i think a lot of this you know just as as american christians i think we largely have lost the idea of virtues you know mm -hmm. i don't think most American Christians, at least in the context in which I grew up, could explain to you the difference between cardinal virtues and theological virtues and, and which are which, you know. Yeah. Um, but but certainly, you know, we talk about prudence um, and that's very important. I mean, you know, you read the Proverbs and you've got the one you've got the one section where two verses back to back address the fool in his folly. And the very next one is don't address the fool in his folly. Point being, you know, reader, allow wisdom to dictate which of those is the appropriate course of action in a given situation. Uh, and sometimes, you know, it's better to keep scrolling. Right. Just not engage. In fact, I would argue probably 90 to 95% of the time, it's better to just keep scrolling. You know, you yeah. don't have to leave a comment in the comment section, you know, um, the world will go on. So there's that. I do, I do want to ask a question. I think it's, it's somewhat related because I think you're pointing something out about sort of the moment in which we live about Christian engagement. Um, and so let me ask the question and then I'll kind of explain this a little bit more. Does our current milieu impact how we think about cultural engagement? 
And I think this is what I was getting at earlier when I was saying in different periods of time, different, you know, humanism may be more appropriate or rigorism may be more appropriate. So I would say it has to, right? Our milieu has to influence because again, that's that's what wisdom would be, right? It's looking at at the landscape and saying, you know, this approach is preferable right now. And there has been some talk recently and I think it. I think some of it may be a little bit extreme or exaggerated, but but I do think that there's something real about about how we've in in the modern West are living at a moment of shift, where we we formerly inhabited what might be described as a neutral world. You know, I it, it's not that not that the larger culture was was actually neutral towards the gospel, but but that there was more of a space for it, and we're moving into what some have called a negative world which is that that our larger culture is not really very friendly to the gospel or or even even tolerant of it I guess um and of course I'm not trying to I don't mean that in a in a in a legal sense or anything like that I'm just I I do think that there is a a shift there one of the I think as, as modernity unfolds you know I think it's just sort of a logical implication of modernity and so um and so while in a neutral world, you might favor a more humanistic approach, moving into a negative world may cause us to shift more into a rigorous approach. Now, again, I think we have to be careful because, like we said, ascetic disdain is a real issue, um, and we, we certainly want to avoid that. But I do, I do think that if our missional combination is flexible and with integrity, that that rigor may be maybe the more appropriate it's like the terror alert right you know it, right. like yellow you have you have to react in a certain way or orange you react a certain way so so perhaps a kind of moderate rigorism is is most needed right now and what i mean by that though is is really some detachment from the world right i think i mean especially those of us with kids have to think about this you know how much of the world do we want in our home through things like television and smartphones and, you know, streaming and video games and things like that. I, I think those are real conversations we have to have. And I don't know that there's a single right answer for, for every family, but you know, you know, your kids and these are things we need to at least be intentional about. Right. Um, we need to focus on building really robust parish life, you know, center, center our lives around the mass, around catechesis, you know, around, real fellowship, not just social club type stuff, but actually bearing one another's burdens and, and being there with each other and praying with each other. And I think that we need to embrace more spiritual discipline. You know, I mean, I think the American church is kind of fatty, you know, excessive, um, and practicing more discipline would probably not hurt us at this point in time. In fact, quite the opposite. I think it would make us a little more lean. So again, it's not an excuse to engage poorly. I think, but I do think perhaps we could say sometimes when Christians do engage poorly, they're at least picking up on this kind of cultural shift, um, but not handling it properly. Um, so, so if this shift in our current context causes you to act like that, then you would be one of the first people who might benefit from embracing a more rigorous position. Maybe don't engage as much and focus on 
you know, developing in your own life a kind of robust discipleship. And again, it depends on who you are and your own, your qualifications and your dispositions and things like that as far as whether that's that's a gift that you have, you know, engagement or, or not. But anyways, that's my uh, that's my proposal as far as as far as where we are right now. Yeah, and and I think I think I agree with you, but I might come out it come at it from a different way. Um. So my I I I have a little bit of a of a rhetorical question. Um. Has culture ever effectively been presented with an authentically Christian engagement? And I think by that, I mean, we've seen, let's just take the 2000 years of church history. Um, we've seen the church better at certain times than others. Um, and we've seen, you know, good and bad eras of, of, of um, you know, catechesis and devotional life and engagement with the wider world. But I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if, um, I think it's true that, that in recent decades, we've seen in the West, um, you know, a, a more extreme sort of humanist approach. And what that's resulted in, I think, is a lot of capitulation and a lot of just accepting of, of kind of whatever's currently a cultural trend. And that has changed, uh, but it's still a cultural trend. So let, let me give you an example. Um, the cultural sort of view of women, um, what we can call maybe a negative view um, of women and women's rights and uh, things like that, um, we could see, you know, expressed in its worst ways as misogyny and, um, you know, even bigotry or, or issues with race or whatever. The, the culture has a particular standpoint. We can think of maybe uh, Jim Crow South. Uh, the church did a lot of capitulating to Jim Crow South in uh, accepting racism and accepting um, a view of uh, their fellow human beings that is just patently non-Christian um, or a view towards women that is oppressive and um, negative and, 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 you know, problematic in so many ways. And the church capitulated to it and said, yep, that's what we do. Um, and then later on, culture shifts and moves in a different direction and the church is capitulated to that cultural move. Um, so we see that that's kind of been the landscape. Right. Um, but again, based on that sort of rhetorical question, if the church was being um, its best self, then it would have seen the inherent danger, the inherent evil of uh, those racist tendencies in culture and would have said absolutely not. It would have applied, a you know, that strong sense of uh, dignity and personhood 
that is so core to the gospel. And it would have looked at it and said, that's nonsense, what are you doing? Um, and then it would have looked at something like um, women's empowerment and rights and things like that and would have said, well, you know what? Culture was really bad at that. Right. And here's the, this is a moment where we're treating women like human beings. Amazing. This is great. You know, we can extend a yes to this and say um, there is a, you know, a positive move here towards uh, human dignity and treating men and women um, like they matter in society and, you know, getting women access to things like some, you know, uh, access to jobs and, and careers and things like that, that there was no natural, theological, rational reason to exclude them from. Um, yes, you know, women can be astronauts. Like, that's a great thing. Why not? Um, there, there, there's no reason to have it as a boys club or, or that's just a stupid example, but the church can offer that. Yes. Um, and we just haven't really seen it. We haven't really seen a robust, um, cultural engagement in the church as, as you described, uh, earlier, sort of what the hermeneutic looks like. Um, I don't, I don't know if we've necessarily seen it done well, where we have that balance. And maybe this is the time uniquely for the church to begin practicing that balance. And I think it has to be rooted in, um, from a personal experiential standpoint, people have to be grounded. Um, they have to be rooted in uh, the Christian life. And that Christian life uh, transforms you, makes you into a person who exercises the virtues. It makes you into a person. It transforms you through God's grace into someone who can show wisdom, who can show charity, uh, who exercises uh, hope and faith and all of these things. Um, but I, I've mentioned this in some sermons recently. Um, the world outside our door isn't uh, evil. It's lost. Right. Right. And as Christians, um, if we view it as evil, we become disdainful and we revel in its fall and we, we hate it and we oppose it and all these things. If we view it as lost, then we will serve. Uh, we will do what Christians are supposed to do. We will will advocate for the people on the margins and we will love the people that come through our doors and we will try to make them into better people uh, and better Christians. And hopefully as priests see the fruit of real transformation in their lives through God's grace. Yes. Um, so I, that's, that's, that's kind of my approach to it is like, I'd actually like to see the balance ex executed. I don't, I didn't mean to say that we had at one point achieved the balance and then we didn't all of a sudden we didn't in modern times, you know, right. Right. I right, think right. the church has, has been, I think, I think in the wake of modernity, the church has not done this well because you have a sort of two paths taken outside of modernity or a, as a result of modernity, which is you have that sort of capitulation to 
and then you also have the a sort of fundamentalist you know entrenchment against right and there hasn't really been a a, a great middle way in in any of that so i don't i don't mean to say we lost it we had it and then we lost it you know i mean I've I've mentioned that to people before, you know, they'll they'll say, well, you know, back in the 1950s or 60s, you know, it was the church was great and everybody went to church and it was like, well, yeah, but churches were still segregated in a lot of places at that point, you know. So obviously right. things were things were off there. Um and so so yeah, you're right. The church has not though also important to to I think say that at least in terms of our cultural engagement, the church is not necessarily monolithic. You know, so yes, I think we can point to a lot of bad examples of this, but there are good examples. So like growing up in the evangelical world, I think, you know, one one good example of this was always Tim Keller, you know, um, who I obviously disagree with on some things. But as far as his actual mode of engagement, I think is really positive. Yeah. Um, and and he's not alone or, or necessarily unique in that way. But but he would be someone who I'd point to and say, yeah, I really like him, you know, uh, where I might point to someone like a Mark Driscoll and say, you know, no, that's, that's, that's what oh, it looks like when it's wrong. I'll extend a big old nope. <laughs> exactly. To, to Mark Driscoll. But um, I also think, I also think it, uh, too, and, and, you know, Herbert McCabe talks about this. If you do not love, you're not fully human, he would say. So there's that element, exactly what you're saying. We see the world as lost. We love it. You know, we want to love it into being something lovable, I think, is the idea there. Right. That's what our engagement is about. But we also have to be prepared. And I think this is the this is kind of what I was talking about when we're talking about the shift from neutral to negative world is that McCabe says, if you love, you will be killed. Yeah. And and that's certainly not. I. That's not only a Christian truth claim. I mean, you can think about Socrates and the apology, you know, getting killed by the Athenians for speaking the truth to them. Right. Uh, and he does it out of love. I mean, he tells them, I'm doing this to make Athens a better place. Right. And they still kill him. Um, and I think that that as preachers of the gospel, we have to be prepared to be killed. But this is where this is where I think a culture war approach falls short. Right. The culture war approach is is one in which you are not willing to be killed, uh, at least not without, you know, punching back. Right. And I think what, what we're saying is there has to be an element of vulnerability here that 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 is a prerequisite to actual engaging with someone, right? Because right. engagement is not sitting them down and giving them, you know, five points that they must agree with and they have to sign the doctrinal statement and they have to agree, you know, to not get any more tattoos or listen to certain kinds of music or whatever, you know, that's, that's right. not quite what we're, what we're trying to do. And that's not effective cultural engagement. Engagement means we encounter the other and hope that both of us are transformed through that encounter exactly yeah um and I, that's why i think you know a, a positive approach to this um i think is if you if you look at um both the pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world gaudium et spes uh, joy and hope uh, and you also look at lumen gentium the light of the nations um we we see, I think, uh, a, a sort of positive approach to this, um, where the gospel is something that is good and needs to be missionally taken out into the world. Christ is the light of the nations. 
Um, so there is this, this sort of willingness um, to love and to go out into the world in love uh, and to engage with uh, cultures and, and do that project that, that, that we're saying, you know, bringing that balance, extending yeses and nos, um, saying, you know, we love you and we want to engage with you, um, but also like be better. You know, uh, there, there, there are these these aspects, these tensions that we that we we exert in the church um, that apply to ourselves as much as anything. Um, you know, when you if you read Gaudium et Spes, you'll see that that there is a pastoral approach to our engagement. We engage with the world in joy and in hope, um, but also the do better applies to ourselves. Um, Christians have you know, done a really good job of telling other people what they need to do better and a really bad job at being better themselves. Um, and I, and I think it's, it's especially powerful and transformative to those we engage with when they see that this is sounds trite, but it's just the truth. When they see that we are, we're not jerks, right? You know, when when they're confronted with a real human being um, who has been transformed or is being transformed by the gospel, is trying to live, you know, the life the Christian is called to live, that's transformative in a lot of different ways, it, even if it just opens the door to somebody who's hostile to Christianity. Mm -hmm. You know, being somebody who's willing to listen, who's willing to engage honestly and intellectually personally with somebody who is hostile to christianity it it actually does amazing things mm, um and I, and i think that's just that's the that's the the way forward is to try to try to put this balance into practice yeah absolutely absolutely well listeners i think as we kind of bring this con this conversation to a conclusion if 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 you think of any really good examples of cultural engagement, I think we would love to hear about them and, and would potentially share them, you know, in future episodes, if, if you send them via email or, or make a comment on our, um, on our social media postings about these episodes, we would love to hear um, if you have any, any good examples of, of, of how this is done well. Um, because I think it always helps for us to have models in our minds that we can emulate um, which is why we spend so much time talking about the saints, right? That's what they do. Um, they emulate for us so that we can follow them as they follow Christ. Um, so, yes, well, very good. Well, I think this has been a very enlightening conversation and very helpful, certainly helpful for me as I'm thinking through some of these issues um, on a number of levels, you know, within, in a family, in a parish, um, as, an, as, a, as a person who does try to do engagement through podcasts and writing and everything like that. So... Well, uh, as, as we've come to the end of the episode, it's time for one of our favorite segments. What are you into? Father Creighton, what are you into these days? Well, so I'm going to say sort of two things. Um, one, I'm still really into climbing. Uh, I've been doing it a lot lately, and we're about to enter into uh, outdoor season uh, where the weather gets nice and cools down and... Uh, for outdoor rock climbing, cooler weather is better because you get better friction because hmm. um, your hands are drier and the air is drier. Um, and so I've got a couple trips 
uh, planned uh, to Foster Falls uh, in Tennessee and some some other places and uh, T Wall in Tennessee. We're going to do some trad climbing, some for, fun sport climbing, and I'm very excited. Uh, I love being outside, so camping and climbing. There's nothing better. Um, the other thing that I'm very like curious and into. This is a shout out to uh, to Father Robert Bader. Um, who's been on the podcast before, um, he bought me the Royal Game of Ur, which is probably the oldest board game uh, in the world, um, 2500 BC, um, and uh, a, an ancient Near Eastern sort of uh, board game. Uh, basically, you're trying to race your opponent uh, to the end, and it's in some form or another been played for a very, very, very long time. And uh, he bought me a, uh, a really nice uh, example of it. And uh, I'm excited to start playing it. And uh, yeah, there's I love board games. So an ancient board game is like a double whammy. Very good. Very good. Yeah, board games are awesome. My wife and I have gotten we, we've started playing board games every night after the boys go to bed instead of watching TV because we were just kind of like binge watching stuff. And it just, at a certain point we're just like, this is kind of boring. So um, instead of that, we play games after, after they go to bed and then whoever wins the most games during the week gets to nominate three movies to watch on nice. Friday night. And the other person gets one strike. So we've been playing. So yeah, any, especially two player board games, we always need more recommendations for that um, because there are only so many you can, you can do like that, you know? So the um, Royal game of Ur. Yeah, I'll put it on the list. I'll put it on the list. Well, so for me, uh, I have a couple things to say here. Uh, I went to the... St I, I, I guess the first thing I'm into is racket and ball sports. So I went to the store the other day to Dick Sporting Goods, and I bought a pickleball set and a racquetball set, and I said, man, is this middle age? <laughs> but no, but I, I have, I'm the member of a gym that has racquetball courts, like eight of them. And so the, our new deacon at St. Paul's and I have, have been playing together and it is so fun. It's so fast paced. Yeah. Um, it's a quick turnaround, you know, because you don't have to go chase the balls very far. Yeah. So it's not like tennis where, you know, 50% of your time is just trying to find the other, <laughs> find where the balls went, you know? Um, but it's, and, and there's air conditioning, which is also a plus. Uh, so that's been a lot of fun. And then a pickleball is also surprisingly fun. You know, the first time I ever saw pickleball was when they are, uh, was at our, our tennis courts down the street. And we had some, some older folks who went there, you know, and were playing. And I said, oh, that's a nice game for older people. But then I started playing it and it's actually really hard and it's a lot of fun. So, so racquetball and pickleball have been my, um, have been my favorite. I love it. Yeah. I, um, I played racquetball a lot in high school. Uh, we had yeah. a, a a group of friends that um, we were we all played like a lot of sports, but we would always have you know a season off between sports or something like that, and so we we just played racquetball for like hours, you know, super fun. Squash is fun as well, so people out there yeah, play squash. squash. Squash is also fun. But anyway, so so the first thing is is racket sports. The second thing is a new podcast called the classical mind, which I am doing with, uh, Dr. Jared Henderson. Um, people may know Jared Henderson. He used to host Matins and Augustinian has a great podcast voice. 
Um, it does not take away at all from what we're doing here because what we're doing here is theological. What we're doing at the Classical Mind is just talking about great books in the Western canon. Um, so like we are actually tomorrow going to be recording an episode on the Apology by Plato. Um, and we're going to do an episode on the intellectual life and, you know, the narrative of Frederick Douglass, you know, those kind of works. Um, so I'm really looking forward to that. And we're, we're doing it a little less frequently than we do the sacramentalist, but um, it is, it's super fun to get into that. You know, I'm, I'm classically educated and have been a classical educator. Um, Jared is, has a PhD in philosophy. And so we have a ton of fun discussions. So um, listeners give that a listen as well, the classical mind. Um, and then finally, the third thing I'm into. When I woke up this morning, the, the sun was a little brighter the 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 birds were singing a little louder the the flowers were smelled a little bit sweeter because today is football season <laughs> nfl starts tonight <laughs> so i'm very 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 excited uh for that so yes i think i'll stop there i could probably come up with a few more things i'm into but i'm sure everybody is turned off by now listeners if you like what we're doing here at the sacramentalist please uh subscribe to us rate review us wherever you get your podcast share us with your friends and also you can join our patreon for five dollars a month you can be a member of the communion of patreon saints um to close our time today i'm gonna close i'm gonna pray a collect for mission from the book of common prayer uh page 38 in the 1928 and then father creighton is gonna uh pray a prayer for um for elizabeth the second who passed away today, uh, not not too long before we uh, before we started recording. Let us pray. O God, who has made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the whole earth, and didst send thy blessed Son to preach peace to them that are far off and to them that are nigh, grant that all men everywhere may seek after thee and find thee, bring the nations into thy fold, pour out thy Spirit upon all flesh, and hasten thy kingdom through the same thy Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Deliver your servant Elizabeth, O sovereign Lord Christ, from all evil, and set her free from every bond, that she may rest with all your saints in eternal habitations, where with the Father and the Holy Spirit you live and reign, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for her. Lord Jesus Christ, receive her. All the thanks and praise.